we will finish up the 17th chapter of the book of John. And um, it also brings to the end of um, the high priestly prayer that we've been in for the last couple of weeks that covers the 17th chapter. It also, as um, I'll even mention, it also finishes up the the upper room discourse. So it's a a shift is about to happen and you'll really pick that up um, next week whenever we get into um, the arrest, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus as Jesus crosses over into the Kidron Valley. All right, John 17, we're just gonna look at just a couple of verses is all we have left. We're in uh, verse number 24, we'll be from verse 24 down to the bottom of verse 26. Jesus is praying here. Um, So he is speaking to the Father, praying to the Father, and here is his prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just man, oh man, thank you, Lord. How good and gracious you have been to us to be sovereign over us, to be both sovereign and good. That's what we've sung about two of your attributes that complement one each other, that you are sovereign, that everything that has happened in our lives, Lord, it has, um, you, have, you, you have been in control over it. You see all things. Nothing takes you by surprise. And not only do you see, not only are you all-knowing, but you are also sovereign over it. And you're good. All of your ways to us are good. And so, Lord, we worship you and we thank you for that. We look to the cross that declares that to us. We give thanks to you this morning for your word. Lord, as we think about a place and a land that we've never seen, we've only heard about it in scripture. We've only heard descriptions of it. Lord, may we long for that place. May this world, may it feel like a cheap suit to us as we let heaven fill our minds. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So throughout the high priestly prayer, here's what, we're, here's what we've been saying for those of you that may be visiting with us and I welcome you and thank you for being here. Or those of you that maybe missed a few weeks is in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for specifically for uh, kind of three subjects of his prayer. And so we said they kind of work like concentric circles. And so the innermost circle of the prayer is Jesus is praying for his own glory. He's praying for that throughout whatever else he prays about. It's a prayer that his glory would be made manifest. And so the innermost circle could be Jesus's glory. On the outside, the next circle would be Jesus is praying for his disciples. For now, these 11 men, for Judas has already, has already betrayed Jesus, he's out working out that deal. And we'll see that next week when we get into John chapter 18. So Jesus is praying for the remaining 11 disciples. He's praying that the spirit's gonna come upon them, that God would use them, God would protect them. And thirdly, he's protecting, he's praying for his church. That's you and I. He's praying for future believers that will believe in him because of the testimony and the word of the apostles, those 11 men. They're gonna write things and they're gonna tell the story and they're gonna preach and 
fast forward, you know, a couple thousand years, and that's you and I becoming uh, Jesus' disciples. And so just to make sure you understand it, that in Jesus' last minutes, last hours, if you would, he is thinking about and praying for you. And so what was Jesus praying for us about? What is it that's upon his heart? Well, we also have that given to us here in the text of scripture. We saw that Jesus is praying for his church and there are three things. Well, actually there's four, but we've covered three things that Jesus is praying in particular for his church. He's praying for our security. He is praying for our purity and he is praying for our unity. He's praying for our security. He's praying and saying, God, keep them, guard them. He says, not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition, the son of destruction, speaking about Judas. And he says, that was already prophesied. We already knew that, that Judas wasn't gonna remain. But for these that remain and for those that will come to me by believing in me through the preaching and the proclamation of the word of God, Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by hearing God's word. As God's word is faithfully preached, as God's word is faithfully promulgated, then God utilizes, he reigns, he harnesses the preaching of his word to call his saints to himself. That's what he's praying there. And he's saying, once those people come in, now I'm praying God that you, Father, would guard them, that you would protect them. He said, I think in John chapter six, that I hold them. Nobody can snatch them from my hands. That's what he's praying. He's praying for our security. Second, he's praying for our purity. He prays and says, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He's called them out of the world. And now he's praying that God would get the world out of them. That's what he's praying. Just like in the children of Israel, when the Exodus opens up and the children of Israel, God's people, they're in slavery in Egypt. And God raises up a prophet that comes and says, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, God with a mighty hand and a strong arm, he's gonna deliver us out of slavery, out of Egypt. He's gonna take us to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're like, what does it look like? And what, we don't know yet, but we're gonna believe God and we're gonna sojourn there. We're gonna go. And then God busts them out by his strong and mighty work. He delivers them out of Egypt, takes them across the Red Sea, on the way to the promised land, they stop by Mount Sinai where God declares the word to them. They get a glimpse of God's glory and God in Mount Sinai, he tells his people, here's what it means to be my people and here's how to behave as my people and here's how to worship me. He gives them the tabernacle even there where they can have a place of worship. He gives them a sacrificial system knowing that you're gonna still sin, but here's means by which you can find forgiveness for your sins. And then God takes them on their journey to the promised land. God got them out of Egypt. God puts them in a wilderness to get Egypt out of them. And the same thing he's doing in us. He calls us as Christians out of the world. And now God's got to sanctify us. He's got to get the world out of us. And that's why you're here at church this morning, hopefully. Those of you that are saints, so you can sit under the preaching of his word and by the power of his spirit, he would do a work inwardly in you to sanctify you, to purify you, to grow you, to expose your sinfulness and your sins, to teach you how to behave. What does it mean to be the children of God? To teach you what he's done for you and rescuing you and saving you from the slavery of, not of Egypt, but the slavery of your sin under the cruel taskmaster, not Pharaoh, but Satan. That's where we're at Mount Sinai this morning, hearing and listening to God's word that we may be intent, that it may do a work in us and that the world may be, ex may be exposed in our hearts and may be expunged from our hearts. 
taken out of us and we're on our way. We're on our way to the promised land. Lastly, he's also, he's prayed for our unity, that you and I as his church, that we may be one even as he is one. And now we get to the final petition, Jesus' final plea, the final request that he's gonna ask on behalf of his church to the Father. And it's this prayer that we would be with him that Jesus is praying us into heaven. Father, I desire that they also, that's all of us together collectively as the church whom you have given to me, that they may be with me where I am. Now, when Jesus says this, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is uh, getting ready. He's probably just outside of the same room where the upper room discourse has taken place. He's getting ready to cross over into the Kidron Valley, going into the Garden of Gethsemane. But when Jesus says, here where I am, he's not talking about this earth. Jesus isn't talking about Jerusalem. Jesus isn't talking about the Garden of Gethsemane or the street where he stands. Jesus is talking about heaven. Jesus, throughout this prayer, he is already anticipating heaven. He's already anticipating where he will be, to be with his father, returning back into the glory. We've seen that throughout the text. In verse 11, Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world. I mean, he's there, but he's saying, I'm no longer. He's anticipating being into heaven. He's gonna be here for a while longer. He'll still endure the cross. He will still die. Even after his resurrection, he'll spend 40 days with his disciples, but nevertheless, he is still anticipating heaven. He says, I am coming to you. Verse number 13, he also says this, now I'm come, now I come to you. Jesus is already anticipating heaven and it's his desire, is a desire for eternal fellowship with the Father and his desire is that his church, his people would be included into that. That in Jesus's final petition, it, it guarantees and it finalizes our security and our purity and our unity. This is the finality of our security, our purity, and our unity. Think about that. Your security will, you'll be secure with Jesus when you get to heaven. Satan will be no more. Satan won't be able to, he won't be in heaven. He won't be able to get to you. Your sinful flesh will be done away with. You will receive a glorified body. Your security will end when you see Jesus and when we're with Jesus our purity will end when we see Jesus and we're with Jesus. John, the same writer that wrote the gospel of John, writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st, he also writes Revelation. But in 1st John 3, 2, he says this, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be. That's future. You're God's child already. You're in his family. It's not, hey, let's spend life figuring out whether or not you're in his family. No, you're in his family because he's loved you and chosen you and called you into his family. He's adopted you through the precious work of Jesus, adopted you into your family. You're God's children now, but what we will be, that's future, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that's Christ. When Jesus appears, when either he appears in the heavens, because that's what Jesus is, he's in heaven right now, right? Like right now, where is Jesus bodily? Where is Jesus Christ? He's in heaven on a throne, reigning and ruling and interceding. We get a glimpse of his intercession that he's doing right now. But Jesus is also poised, if you will, at the edge of his throne, waiting on the Father's command to come and to consummate his redemptive plan to come and to bring and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. That's Jesus. And maybe this afternoon, we don't know. 
Like there's a lot of things we know, but one thing we don't know is we don't know when Jesus is going to return. And it could be just maybe, just maybe come Lord Jesus. I mean, I got exciting week ahead of me. I mean, as Pastor Brian said, he, he left out a very important fact whenever he said, pray for Pastor Andy and Pastor Derek. They're gonna be in Orlando. We're not going alone. Our wives are joining with us and no kids. Amen. We love our kids, right? But we're going to Orlando, Florida. And Alistair Begg, for those of you that know Alistair Begg, Alistair Begg's preaching like five times this week. A hotel room, my wife, and Alistair Begg preaching. Is this heaven, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? I got a big week, but it pales into comparison when we think about heaven. Then in heaven, our security and our purity Will be, will be made when we see Christ as he is, when Christ returns, either he returns in glory and we see him there or you and I die and go to heaven and stand before Jesus. I mean, we tell a ton of jokes about heaven. We talk about, you know, the pearly white gates. We talk about St. Peter. It won't be St. Peter. It'll be the just judge of the universe sitting on a throne. You'll appear before him. That's who you will appear before. And Jesus will judge you. And those who are in his faith, those who believe and trust in him, receive forgiveness of sins that he's accomplished on the cross for you that show up with the empty hands, empty hands of faith. When Jesus asked the question, why should you enter into this great reward? And he's like, I don't know why. If I, if, if I, if I can come, it's because of you and you alone. Okay, yeah, that, you get it. Come on in. It's not because you don't go, well, I was a good person and I was a Boy Scout and not that there's anything wrong with the Boy Scouts. And I helped this little old lady across the street and I helped my neighbor rake her yard one time and I tried to do as much good. No, you don't get it yet. All of your righteous deeds are but filthy rags before the just judge of the universe. He sees all and knows all and judges us, not just according to the bad things that we've done, but the good things we try to do with ill intent because none of our motivations are pure. We stand before Jesus with hands clean only because he's cleansed them. He's cleansed them in his blood. We stand before him believing and trusting in him and we enter into his reward. And that's when our purity is finalized. That's where we're going. That's the end of our sanctification. Your sanctification, that's, that's your, that's you, that's your um, personal holiness. It ends in your glorification that your salvation has an, an, a, a, a consummation, it has an ending point, and that ending point is your glorification. It began in the monergistic work of regeneration. It began with God doing what only God can do when he resurrected you from the dead and gave you a new spirit. It goes all the way back to John 3. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. That's regeneration. That's something that God does in your heart and gives you a new nature. And with that new nature, you cry out in faith and repentance and believe in him. It begins in the monergistic work. That means God accomplished it of regeneration and it ends in a monergistic work that God accomplishes of your glorification. The apostle Paul says, when he transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, Philippians 3.21, we will be like Jesus, morally pure as he is morally pure. We will be finally free from the corruption of this flesh. We will be unable to sin as Christ is and was unable to sin. Come Lord Jesus. And we will have our unity. It will be finalized. 
The church will no longer be an invisible body, but it now will be the visible body. All of us who have genuinely be saved, we will be there. We will be there together in Jesus. Paul even writes this in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What Paul's referencing there is, right now we are trying to figure it out. We're reading the Bible and we have the spirit, but we could still kind of make some theological mistakes. There's some room in the non-essentials to figure it out. But when we get to heaven, we're gonna know perfectly. We're gonna know everything. All theology, theological debates will be laid aside and we're all gonna be Baptists. That's what Paul prays there, right? with heavy reform leanings and complementarian and cessation. That's me, wait, wait, that's me. We're all gonna be like me. No, we're all gonna know fully. That's what's gonna happen when we get to heaven. And right now, Jesus's final prayer, his final petition is that his church, that we would be with him in heaven, that we would be ushered into his presence, surrounded by his glory. And look at what he says, it is his desire. Look with me if you would, go back to the text. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. It isn't surprising that you and I would wanna be with Jesus, is it? It's not surprising that you and I would want to be in heaven. I mean, even pagans have a desire to be in heaven. At least they have a desire for their lost loved ones that pass away to be in heaven because they say, rest in peace. Right? Their hope is, is that wherever they've gone, that there's peace there and that they're resting in it. It's no, desi- it's no surprise that you and I would, be, would desire to be with Jesus or desire to be in heaven. But what I do find surprising is that Jesus desires for us to be with him. That it's Jesus's desire that you and I imperfect sinners like us, that you, would, that you and I would be with him. And I really think that says a lot. I mean, doesn't it say a lot about Jesus's heart toward us in this room, those of us who are saved, those of us who are his precious believers? I mean, here's what it says is, Jesus desires fellowship with you. That nobody comes into the kingdom of God by accident or by mistake. No one sneaks into salvation. It was no mistake that you heard the gospel and responded to the gospel. It was no mistake whoever it was that shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was a mom and a dad, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was an old foolish preacher like me that just preached and you heard the gospel and you responded with faith. You cried and repentance, you cried out, woe is me a sinner undone, Jesus saved me. And you prayed a prayer and you received Christ. That's no mistake that you heard the gospel. You responded to the gospel. You're now part of Jesus's church. It wasn't that Jesus lowered his standards to let you in. It wasn't that the father said, okay, we'll, you know, we'll let this one pass. We'll let this one come in. No, 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 that's not what scripture teaches at all. What scripture teaches is that the father foreknew you. That doesn't just mean that he knew about your existence. No, that's not what Paul means whenever he uses that language. What he means is the father, he foreknew you. He knew about your existence and also the father determined to love you, to know you, to be in relationship with you. When did that take place? Well, it's foreknowledge. So it took place long before you were really known. Took long place long before you were conceived, long before you were born, the father foreknew you. 
and the Father chose you and the Father called you and the Father saved you and the Father will perfect you. He will, glorify, he will glorify you. He will joyfully take you into heaven. And that's, that's not Calvinism. That's Romans 8, 29. The Father foreknew you and he predestined you and he called you and he justified you and he will glorify you. That's what Jesus is praying. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. He doesn't say, Father, I desire that those who will come to faith later on in, in, in life, will come to faith later on in history. I'm not, no, 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 that's not what he says at all. Father, those that you have given to me, those that I have glorified myself to, that's, that's the glimpse, you saw a glimpse of his glory through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. And you wanted him, you wanted to believe, you wanted to come to him. Those that who know that the Father has sent Jesus, that's verse 25. Those who affirm Jesus' deity, confess Jesus as Lord. Those who know the name of the Lord, that is those who have entered into personal relationship with Jesus. That is who Jesus is praying for. Those are the people that the Father has given to him. A people of faith will be with Jesus in heaven. That heaven is not a place where good people go to spend eternity. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is not a place where moral people go when they die. Heaven is where sinners who have been saved and washed and made new by their faith in the perfect son, where they go to be with their savior for eternity. That's what heaven is. Heaven is for people who love Jesus and want to be with Jesus and spend time with Jesus and care about the things of Jesus where we go for eternity. Imperfect sinners who have been plunged beneath that perfect flood of his blood through our faith by his grace. And now what I want us to do is we think about heaven, church. I want for the next few minutes to occur is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 2. When Paul says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. The literal, tra literal translation of that would be this, let heaven fill your mind. And that's my prayer for us, is that heaven would fill our mind. Some mornings when I, I get up and um, we don't always uh, eat breakfast in our home, but some mornings we get up and I'll get up early and have a cup of coffee and then I'll get to thinking about breakfast, especially right now, because there's like homegrown tomatoes. And so I will be thinking about homegrown tomatoes with fried eggs. Anybody tracking with me, right? Maybe sometimes smash up a little avocado and put on it, a little bacon frying. And so I'll go into the, the bathroom where Luann's getting ready. My, my wife and I'll say, Luann, do you want anything for breakfast? And Luann will say, no, that's okay. I'm not hungry. And I'll say, okay, are you sure? I'm gonna fix me some bread. No, that's okay. I'm hungry. And so I'll go into the kitchen and I'll start frying up some eggs. And my brother-in-law raises chickens. And I don't know what they feed these chickens, but man, it's something magical because man, they produce the best eggs ever. I'll fry bacon. I'll fry some eggs in that bacon grease. And then I'll pour all that over some, over some, uh, some, some tomatoes. Y'all getting hungry, right? And then what will happen is Luann will walk into the kitchen and she'll go, that smells good. Did you make me any? No, I asked you if you wanted some. Yeah, but that's before I smelled it, right? I'm like, here, here's this. I'll make some more, right? That what happened is the aroma gave her an appetite. 
It's my prayer over the next few minutes that the aroma of heaven would fill this room and would give us an appetite. Would give us an appetite for heaven. That for those of you in the room who've yet to profess Jesus as Savior, that the aroma of heaven would fill this room and your appetite would be that such that you would cry out in faith and repentance and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me of all my sin. I want to be where you are. Not just because it's streets of gold and all of those things, right? Not just because cancer won't be there anymore, but I want to be where you are, my Savior and my God, my Lord who has saved me. And then for those of you in the room, especially those of you that are in seasons of suffering, my prayer is that heaven would fill this room and the aroma of that would give you an appetite that you would leave here more homesick than you've ever been for a home that you've yet to see. Have you heard the saying, or maybe you've seen the bumper sticker or something that a, this so-and-so, this person is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Have you ever seen that or heard that? Oh, you know, so-and-so, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. And it's usually said to try to make us not be so religious and people can be like so religious that they're no good, but there is no such thing as a person who is so heavenly minded that they're, that they're no earthly good. But in fact, most of us Christians, we need to be more heavenly minded. We need to let heaven fill our minds more and more and more. That that person who's so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, they don't exist. Paul says we're to set our minds and fix our minds on heaven, on the things that are above where Christ is seated. Think about those things. That's Colossians 3, 2. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Think about that. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our true and paramount allegiance, our true and paramount home, our true and paramount identity isn't to an earthly country. It isn't to a president. It isn't to a flag, but to a king and to a land that you and I have yet to see, but we shall see it. In Luke 10, verses 20, Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends them out and he gives them real power and real authority. And they go out and they're proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And sometimes as they preach the gospel, sometimes demons would rise up. People that would be demonically oppressed and possessed and the, the, the disciples would pray and those demons would be cast out. And they're freaked out by that. And they come running back to Jesus and they're like, you're not gonna believe this. They're rejoicing, Jesus, or uh, Matthew writes, that the demons are subject to them and Jesus corrects them. And he says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice in this, that your names are written down in heaven. That heaven is a place of paramount joy. It's the source for the Christian a paramount joy and paramount rejoicing. In Psalm 1611, the psalmist writes, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think about that for a second. And we'll come back to that verse. Matthew 5, 12 says that the same sort of promises that we have in John 17, he says, this world is going to despise you. This world is going to hate you. This world is going to reject you. This world is going to persecute you. This world is going to revile you, but you will be blessed. 
not, they're not gonna do that because you're a religious jerk. They're gonna do that if you preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. If you try to live out the kingdom of God, that's what's going to happen to you. But in the midst of persecution, remember this, you have a great reward. And where is your reward? It's not on this earth, but it's in heaven. In heaven is where your reward lies. Paul says in Philippians 3, that our reward, our prize, our trophy, our crown is heaven. The analogy he gives is the analogy of an athlete running a marathon who's about to give up. And he says, don't give up, press on, strain forward, look to what lies ahead, the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May that be true for us, for those in the room who feel weak and weary, look forward, look to heaven. I've only run one race in my whole life. And as I was running it, I looked ahead and I could see the finish line and I kicked it in a gear. That's what Paul is saying. You feel weak, you feel tired, you feel, look to what is ahead and heaven is what's ahead. And heaven is our one and true savings account. It's our storage unit. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and just, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he goes on to say, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? And what are you looking forward to? A couple of years ago, the camp pastor at Crossings Camp where our students went, his name was Eric Reed. Eric pastors a church in Nashville. And Eric said in a message, he said, most of us have rightly chosen heaven over hell, but many of us have yet to choose heaven over this world. I'm not talking about suicidal thoughts. I'm not thinking about something fatalistic here, but I'm think- what I'm telling you, what I'm saying to you is heaven is our home. When you rightly understand heaven is your home, your suffering is no longer meaningless, but your suffering has purpose. And you can look forward and you can look beyond your suffering. Not only is it the presence of so many things that we could think of about positive, but it's also the absence of so much here. When Jesus comes, when we are with Jesus in heaven, there'll be no sickness no sin, no death, no injustices, no selfishness, no sadness, no tears. In fact, our last tears we will cry, Jesus himself will wipe from our cheeks. There'll be no more breakups, no more strife, no more heartache, no more divorce, no more abandonment, no more temptations. Words that we use every day like cancer, diagnosis, malignancy, chemotherapy, treatment, places that we have to go to like hospitals and ICU wards and NICU units, places like assisted living facilities and nursing homes. Those terms, those experiences, those places will only exist in our memories. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen, church. Come, Lord Jesus. We have been made for heaven. Jesus is praying to take us into heaven. 
But yet there is in all of our hearts this tension because we've yet to see it. And there's so many questions about it, right? Well, like the question, what will we do in heaven? I mean, have some of you ever thought about like, what will heaven be like? And more particularly, like, what will we, what will we do in heaven? Now I'm going to give you two things that Jesus prays in this prayer, but let me just, let me go back and just say this. Are there joys and pleasures in this life? Is, is anybody having a good time? Like, not, maybe not right now, right? But is anybody having a good time in this life, you know? Like, there's a sense with which so many of us, like, man, we're having such a great time, we don't want it to end, right? I mean, you just think about that. I, I, I've preached funerals of people, and I would say, that is so true. They were having such a great time in this earth. They didn't want, and there's things that we look forward to. Naturally, there's things that we want to see, right? Like, those of you who have yet to have teenage children, you think you want to look forward to the teenage years, but if you could skip them, do that. And those of us, like my wife and I, that with two thirds of our children, we're almost through those teenage years. And now we're really looking forward to the next phase of life and grandchildren and vacations and all of those things. And here's what I would say, if God can make pleasure and bring joy, like are any of you bored? No, we're not bored, are we? Like if he can bring pleasure and joy, in this broken, fallen world that is, has his curse upon it, like how much more will he be able to do that in heaven? Like, I don't, don't, don't think you're gonna, we're all gonna be plump angels with harps, right? Like people say, hey, you know what? We're just gonna worship Jesus all the time. People go like, so is it gonna be like a church service? Because I may not wanna go, right? It's just gonna be, yes, that's what it's gonna be. It's just gonna be all of the elders of all of the churches forevermore taking turns, tag team and preaching. Sign me up, right? You know, what, listen, what did, it, what did the psalmist write in Psalm 1611? That's under divine, that's a divine unction. That's a divine, like he, that's not just, I think it's David in Psalm 16. That's not just David writing something because he felt like it. That's God's revelation being made known to David as he's writing what will be inscripturated for us to have for eternity. He says, in, in Jesus's hands are pleasures forevermore. There's more pleasure, more joy to be had in heaven than what is even here. So what will we be doing in heaven? Well, I don't know exactly. I mean, hopefully we're going to be catching monster bass, right? And doing fun stuff, amen? Like that's, that's what I'm hoping, Evan, and to all to the glory of God. Hopefully that's what it's gonna be like, but I don't know. But these two things Jesus gives to us in this prayer. What will we do in heaven? Well, look, number one, we're gonna see the fullness of Jesus's glory. And I hope that sounds good to you. And number two, we're gonna experience the fullness of the Father's love. Where did I get that from? Well, I got that straight from scripture. So Jesus says, Father, I desire that they, they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. See, to see my glory. Make sure I'm reading this right. Yeah. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Two things, to see the fullness of Jesus's glory. And number two is to experience the fullness of the Father's love. That's what we're gonna do in heaven. You and I, we're gonna see the fullness of Jesus' glory. Right now, what we see, 
we see through a glass dimly of, the, of Jesus's glory, but we see and experience his glory, don't we? When you spend time with him in the word, don't you experience a, a taste, a foretaste of Jesus's glory? When you're gathered together with the church and you're singing songs to Jesus, like the one we just sang a few minutes ago and we're singing, God, you're sovereign over us. Don't you see and get a glimpse of his glory? that we encounter, as we encounter Jesus in his word, through prayer, through worship, through the common grace of creation, we, we see through the crevices and the slats of this world to see Jesus in his glory that's on the other side. My, my wife and I, uh, now two and a half years ago, we, uh, we adopted a little girl from Haiti. Uh, a lot of you know that, and a lot of you know Safira. And so Safira spent the first... Uh, Almost two years of her life, Safira spent, or no, over two years of her life, Safira spent in a, in a Haitian uh, orphanage. And so uh, the, the process was such that Luann and I got to go down several different times and visit our daughter before the, before the adoption was finalized and we got to bring her home. And the, um, man, the orphanage where she lived, um, it, was a, it was okay, but it was a sad place. There wasn't any grass that grew there. It was only a uh, concrete. There was only about three trees on the property. The property was pretty small. There was one little courtyard that was smaller than the sanctuary. Um, that, that, and it was concrete slab where the kids could go outside and play. And on the other side, they had like, it, it kind of looked like a, a prison. It had all these bars. In fact, we, we still have pictures of the place on our phone. And Safira always wanted to go, hey, can I see, my, can I see pictures for from when I was little and was in Haiti. The other day she was looking at it and she saw like a picture of that, her room, it was her room. She said, daddy, did I used to live in that crate? That's what she said. And I guess she's thinking about dog crate. Did I used to live in, I'm like, yeah, girl, you used to live in that crate. And the kids didn't get to leave very often. The only time they really, from the time that their biological families dropped them off, the only time they really, uh, as far as we can ascertain that they got to leave was if they went to the embassy or before a judge or some other part of their adoption process, they would get to leave, but they didn't take field trips. They didn't go outside the, the, the walled in. I mean, the whole uh, place facility is walled in with a huge gate and, you know, like Castino wire that's all around it and broken glass and all of those things. And sometimes of an afternoon, especially the kids would, uh, they would lay down and right outside of the gate was this really busy street and the kids would lay on their bellies and they would, they would peek through the bottom of the gate and they'd just be looking to see. They'd be all lined up right there, peeking outside and looking to see people's feet and truck tires go by. And that's what you and I do. We get glimpses of the world that awaits us on the other side. But sometimes we think heaven's really, really far away, but it's not. It's right it's right over there. It's right, it's right, it's right, it's here. It's, it's so close. It's so close that you'll get there as you take your final breath, your next breath you take. You think about how you breathe, your rhythm of your breathing, and you'll breathe out in this world, and the next time you breathe in, you'll breathe in in heaven and glory. You'll close your eyes in this world, and you'll open them up in glory. It is so close, and when you get there, there's a whole nother world that is out there. And what you will see first and foremost is you will see Jesus and you will see his glory. And at the glimpse of that, that will transform you. But second, you will also experience the fullness of the Father's love. Notice that's how this prayer ends. It ends in love. It ends with Jesus praying and talking about love. I made, I've made known to them your name. That's, that's 
God's character, he's saying. Father, I've made known to them your character. I've manifested it before you. I've told them about you. I've taught them about you. And I'm gonna continue to make it known. How's he gonna do that? He's about to die. He's gonna do it first and foremost. He's gonna do it on the cross as a display of his love. He's gonna do it through the power of his resurrection. He's gonna do it when he ascends on high and sends the spirit. Spirit's gonna be with them. He's gonna give them the word. He's gonna continue to make it known. He's even doing that this morning. But look at that, that the love with which you have loved me, that it may be in them. And then I too am going to be in them. That this chapter, it ends with Jesus's love. And do you remember how the high priestly prayer began? The high priestly prayer began some, what, four chapters ago in John 13. In John 13, the high priestly prayer, I mean, not the high priestly, but the upper room discourse begins like this in the 13th chapter of John. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world. He loved them to the end. That the upper room discourse begins with Jesus's love for his church and it ends with his love for this church and his prayer, his petition to the father is that you and I as his church, that we would be both spectators and participants in the love that the father has for the son The father has loved the son before the world was ever created. Before there was ever anything, there has always been existence, the Trinity, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And the father has always loved the son much before before Genesis 1 opens up, before you and I are sitting here, the father loved the son. And flowing from that love is what happens in creation. It's almost as if the father desired to have more sons, more children, more daughters to love, like he loves his perfect son, Jesus. So he creates and he saves and he redeems and he's ransomed. And what he's saying in all of that is, you gotta see how much I love my son. You gotta see how much I love my son. The same love, that's what verse number 23, we glossed over it last week, but you love them even as you loved me. Think about that. We can sing songs and say it for a hundred years. Oh, how he loves us. But let it sink in his great love for you that the same way that the father loves the son, the father loves us. He loves you if you are his. That some, gosh, I don't know, five or six years ago, that's what led Luann and I to adopt was we just felt like we had more love to give. We felt like, man, we got a good thing happening in this home, you know? Like our kids, we love them immensely. They love and they respect us immensely. We've got a healthy thing happen here. And so what we'd love to do is we would love to bring another child into that, to see this and to experience this. And so fast forward now, and that's how we got little Severe Jane Lawrence here is for, from a desire for her to be a spectator of the way that we love each other and the way that we love our kids and our kids loved us, but not just a spectator in that, but to be a participant in it. She gets adopted in. And 
the same love, maybe even greater. My, my biological children may say even greater love. The same kind of love, the same flavor of love, the same intensity of love that we have for our begotten, we have for her. And the same thing is true for you. The Father said, look at this. What have we got here in the Trinity? This love that I have for you, my son. And what I want is I want to adopt more children to come and to be spectators in heaven of this kind of love and to be participants, to be participants in this love. And you and I, we get a foretaste of that in our salvation. We get a foretaste of that in our adoption. We get a foretaste of that in him giving us the spirit and him saving us of him singing over us and loving us and providing for us and taking care of us. We get a picture of that kind of love. But it ends here and will end here as well as love like that is to be experienced and then it's to be shared. And that's what he leaves with. It's to be experienced, it's to be felt, it's to be known that you know that God loves you and his love has been set upon you, that his love comes to you, personalized to you. It's not to just a group of generic people, but he has loved you, those whom he foreknew. He called, he saved, he called to himself. That's the kind of love. It's a love for you that he has for you, but that love doesn't terminate on you. That kind of love, that kind of community, that kind of harmony is nothing, is, is never something that we hoard that we just experience, that we say, oh, look, world, at the way that God loves us. No, 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 no. We share it with others. We share the kind of love that he has given. We share it with others, and we share it in a number of ways. We share it as we share our faith, and we tell people about the love that's available in God, that they may come and experience it. We share it as we make more babies to the glory of God. Some of you are are at it and keep doing that. Right? Add to your family so that not just you have more kids, but that you, so you can tell them of the love of God. So you can tell them about a God who loves them, who sent his son to die for them. As you and I, as we adopt and we do foster care and we bring the orphaned and the estranged into our homes to love them with an agape love to receive them into our homes and to say, hey, this is what Jesus has done for me. Adopted people care about adoption and that's what we're doing, bringing you in. We do it as we welcome one another here in this place, that as you welcome each other, that's what Paul says, therefore in Romans 15, seven, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. As you and I, as we extend a word of welcome, as we say, hey, good morning, good to see you. I'm glad you're here. My name is, and you fill in the blank with your name. What's your name? As we do that, as we welcome one another, it's an extension of God's love and God's welcome that he has done for us, his inclusion to us. As we welcome new people into our community and into our community groups, bringing them in both to experience and to be spectators and to experience and participates in the unity and the harmony and the love that we have here in this church. You and I have found with a group of strangers, it's never to be hoarded on ourselves, but it's always a love that is to be shared. It's a love that transforms us. And it 
calls us to share. We just keep doing that until Jesus comes back or we go to be with him. Let's pray. Jesus, may heaven fill our mind. May heaven fill our mind. And as it fills it, may it may it produce in us a sense of comfort and a sense of urgency. A sense of comfort that we know that there's coming a day when all of the sufferings of this world will be laid to rest. Bring a sense of comfort as we know this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we anxiously await you, Jesus, our Savior, to return from it, to right all of the wrongs that have ever been done on this earth. That your sword that you bring out, your winnowing fork that you bring will upset the nations. And that you will ultimately, you will judge and you will rule perfectly with perfect justice. And we long for that. We absolutely long for that. As we flip the stations and pause for a second on news stations and see what's happening in our own country and what's happening around this globe, what comforts our hearts is there's coming a reckoning day, a day of vengeance and a day of justice and then an eternity of justice. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. May it birth within us as we think about heaven, that sense of comfort, but may it also birth within us a sense of urgency. Why do you wait? Why do you tarry? Well, your word tells us it's not because you're slow, but it's because you're being patient. You're being patient with sinners like maybe some of the sinners who are in this room. Your patience is not to be counted as slowness, but you're being patient so that you will gather all that have been given to you. And maybe that's people in this room. Maybe today will be the day of salvation. Maybe the prodigal is here, the prodigal who's been running and is weary and is tired, and maybe today's the day they lay it down. They come home to you. Mm. May they taste the great love that you have for us. In your name we pray, amen.